visiting Lumpo Cha's memorial <coughs> event in Thailand in January. It's usually a very pleasant occasion. Many monks from around Thailand and the world come together, together with thousands of lay practitioners. And although some people find it a very large event with a lot of organization, it's run very smoothly and the atmosphere is always very peaceful. And it's a constant reminder of how <clears throat> how much interest in Buddhism in the world there still is. And that's translated into monks and nuns ordaining, people ordaining as Sangha members, monasteries beginning and continuing. And generally the Sangha keeps growing and inspiring new generations of people to practice. This is partly because of the quality of Lumpo Cha's te teachings and the wisdom he expressed in the way he trained monks and nuns and set up monasteries in a way that can be passed on from one place to another, one group of bhikkhus to another. So nowadays there are monasteries and hermitages <coughs> all over the world, as far flung as Brazil, North America, Canada, Australia, New Zealand, throughout Europe and then in Asia. Today I was talking to Ajahn Karuniko who's on retreat in Chithurst Monastery in the forest there. And he said it was minus three degrees. So I said, temperature here is almost 40 degrees today. It'll probably be over 40 degrees tomorrow. So the far-flung corners of the world with totally opposite climatic conditions. But the practice of the Dhamma Vinaya can still thrive in these different places. Another thing at this, the Ajahn Chah event is that you hear many teachings from Thai and foreign monks. So people have their different reflections, different ways of looking at the Dhamma maybe emphasizing different points of Dhamma practice. But there's also common themes that you can see running through the way people describe the practice and generally linking back to Lumpur Chara, 
founding teacher in this modern era, of course leading back to the Buddha as well. The theme of training the heart as we pursue the monastic life is one of those reoccurring subject matters for discussion and talk when we hear the Dhamma. Even though we put effort into building and maintaining and cleaning monasteries which provide us with the places of practice the heart of the practice is the training of the heart because the problems we face arise in our own hearts and minds so the solutions are there as well building a monastery or finding a quiet place to practice is a invaluable part of the practice it contributes to peace of mind and if we can find a peaceful place to practice that already is a good starting point but then we still have to develop the Eightfold Path the qualities of, of the Eightfold Path in our own hearts and minds one of the phrases you hear often from the chanting we do we should be developing the practice that is beautiful in the beginning beautiful in the middle beautiful in the end adi kanyanang maje kanyanang pariyosana kanyanang what is the beautiful practice well sometimes teachers refer to it as the practice of sila samadhi Panya, the three different component parts of the Eightfold Path. Sometimes they refer more just to the quality, the virtues and the skillful qualities of mind that we develop as we practice that are considered beautiful. The way of the world is maybe to focus more on the beauty of form. People like to build beautiful houses, drive beautiful cars, wear beautiful clothes. And they try to make their bodies beautiful and often are very obsessed with that. In the Dhamma we're developing the beauty of the mind. Developing the wholesome, skillful qualities of mind every day. So when we come into the monastery, some of our values change from our previous conditioning, which may have been focused more on the material side, the external side of life. <clears throat> now we're taking the, the beautiful mind and the beautiful qualities of mind as more central to what we're doing. we begin to value wholesome states of mind 
in the ones that we develop, we want to look after, cultivate more, and maintain them. And we don't want to blemish our mind, let in that which is not beautiful. So the mental defilements, greed, anger, and delusion. We don't want them to let them into the mind and create more suffering. And we say, blemish the mind. Another way they talk about the beautiful mind, when the mind has skillful dhammas, skillful mental states, it's bright, <coughs> it's radiant, it's peaceful. Some practitioners can sense that through their meditation, how bright their mind or the mind of others is. Sometimes it's more vague, you just sense somebody is peaceful, their state of mind is peaceful. This is the beautiful, wholesome dhammas arising. And then we notice when unwholesome dhammas arise, the mind seems to darken, maybe darken just for a moment, just a, a quick, a brief mental state, a flash of greed or anger, or jealousy, fear, worry. Or for some people it can become more frequent when they've lost lost their way in life. Maybe there's the unwholesome, unbeautiful states of mind arising frequently, so they have a certain sense of suffering pervading them, their mind. We say a darkness over the mind. But the more you practice, the more sensitive you become to your state of mind and you tend to incline towards the beautiful in the Dhamma, meaning the wholesome. So to develop the skillful intentions that come with sila, whether it's the eight precepts, the ten precepts, or the patimokkha sila, developing the qualities of restraint, Mindfulness, restraint of the senses, how we use our senses, so not to be, we're learning not to indulge them through the effects of greed and anger, but to develop more mindfulness and sense restraint, as this is often where our practice really matures, is learning to restrain the senses and not let them be a a doorway for or for stimulating more kilesa. Because kilesa darkens the mind and brings suffering as a result whenever we give in to mental states of greed, anger, delusion. They always result in more mental stress, suffering. So living in the monastery, we're developing more mindfulness, clear comprehension every day, using the meditation techniques, the tasks that we do, the chores, the basic routine of the monastery to develop more mindfulness, clear comprehension, so that we become more sensitive to our own state of mind and work towards letting go of kilesa and 
preserving the wholesome dhammas. That becomes more or less our guiding principle in the practice. If we become aware that we are following kilesa, as soon as we become aware, uh, our aim is to abandon it, let it go. And if we're not yet aware, well then, our practice, our aim is to develop more awareness, so we become more sensitive to our own state of mind. When we begin our practice, we tend to be looking out all the time at other people, noticing what they're doing. And we can learn some somewhat from that, but really we're overlooking our own mind when we do that. We're missing out on the truth. And the Four Noble Truths are realized in our own minds, not in the minds of others. We have to learn to recognize suffering for what it is and identify its cause. Greed, anger, delusion and all their offshoots, all the little minor mental states that come from them and where suffering and stress comes from. And these are what manifest as craving, craving for sensuality, craving to become, craving not to become. You know, on a daily basis, <clears throat> this is where we're, we're learning, we're observing how suffering forms in our experience. The mental suffering that comes as we crave things and even if we get them, how that stimulates more attachment but then disappointment when we lose the experience or the thing we want. Or craving in the form of vipavadanha, you're not wanting certain experiences that come our way. We, not, we don't want suffering, so we tend to react with aversion to it. So on a daily basis, much of our practice is about observing this process, craving arising, wanting something, not wanting something, and learning to develop more stillness, clarity, developing mindfulness, developing states of calm, samadhi, so that wisdom can develop out of watching and observing this process. And we begin to tire of following craving because we know it leads to suffering. Some of those talks we were hearing at Wat Bapong were talking about, you know, the mature, the maturity of the mind as we practice is often measured by how, how well we let go of craving. In the beginning we're not able to let go of craving very well at all, but we can practice patience with it. And so a lot of our practice is patience as we observe our changing states of mind. We may not be able to do much about them yet, but we can be patient with them, not give in to them, not react to them. It's another quality that brings us to the beautiful mind. The Buddha said, patience, endurance makes the mind beautiful, makes our behavior beautiful when we're patient with the, the ups and downs of life, the pleasant, the unpleasant experiences that come our way. And when we're patient, we don't just react with 
aversion or desire. We know what's happening, but we're patient with it. When you don't get what you want, learning to be patient will first of all show in our behavior, being patient with the weather, whether it's hot or cold, with feelings of hunger or thirst or tiredness. We express our patience in our behavior, learning to say sit, meditations to sit still rather than always move around with every little bit of pain in the body rather than react to every bit of pain in the body or every itch or every feeling. And we practice patience with our speech. If we just react to everything we hear from other people, we join in with mirth if we hear something we like and indulge in socializing sometimes too much. or Sometimes we react with aversion when we hear an opinion we don't agree with. And this is where we lose our patience. We're learning to be able to be patient with the habits of other people, their behavior, their speech, their opinions, their views. And then patience with our own views and opinions, our own physical, physical sensations, feelings we're experiencing in our body the thoughts that arise, the moods, the mental states that arise. And this is what makes our practice beautiful in the beginning. Being patient with any unpleasant feelings, unpleasant situations, any difficulties we encounter. Not always rushing towards what we find as pleasurable. When we do experience some suffering, a lot of our time is spent just seeking distraction from it, seeking something else to do, someone else to talk to, but consciously learning to be patient with that. If you're sitting meditation and you have a desire to get up, just learn sometimes to not give in to that desire and see what happens. You have a desire to move, but then you have enough awareness to say, I'll just be patient with the painful feeling or the restless mind state. And maybe set yourself a small target to sit for another 15 minutes or 30 minutes or whatever. This is the way we build up our patience. Or if it's very hot, the weather is hot today, so you might say, oh, I can't meditate, it's too hot. Have a go, sitting when the weather is hot, or walking when the weather is hot. You don't have to walk in the sun, but you can walk on a shady veranda or on a shady walking path in the forest. Or you can sit somewhere next to an open window. Learn to develop patience with your own body and your own conditions. Or if you are tempted to sort of run away or move away from people because you don't like them. You learn to be patient with them, consciously do it as a practice. And this is where we learn. Our mind becomes beautiful because of patience and it nourishes the other kinds of wholesome mental states, the mindfulness and then insight. It's very difficult to have insight into the truths of life 
if we're impatient, restless, agitated all the time, or if we're always reacting to things with liking or disliking. Your patience leads right on to the development of mindfulness and wisdom. So if you practice sitting still when you're meditating, and you say, I'm not going to move my posture for so many minutes, you'll see Anicca, the, the characteristic of impermanence, change, happening before your very eyes, because you'll see feelings arise that may prompt you to want to move, but you direct your attention to them and you just observe them arising and passing because you've decided to be patient and not move for so many minutes. Many people have breakthroughs like that, and just being patient with a certain feeling, a painful feeling, an itch, restlessness, and they see it how impermanent it is. It's just a feeling that maybe prompts a thought, a desire. But they watch and see it arise, pass away. And they understand it's just impermanent. And the same with our engagement with the world, you know, the use of the requisites, being patient with the requisites that are available to you, the food, the drink, the robes, the kuti. You're consciously practicing patience with the requisites. So rather than just falling into always seeking more or different or something that you haven't got, just sometimes as, a, as an approach to the practice to see if you can get by with what you do have. Now this is very much the flavor at Wapapong. You see, that's how can how a thousand monks and six thousand lay people can live together in one place, patiently waiting for the meal time, patiently taking food, learning to just take enough what you need for one one meal for one day. Patience with getting drinks, whether you get have access to a, any extra drinks or not. You can always have water, but maybe other kinds of drinks you can only get at a certain time and maybe they're not available. But being patient with that. Being patient with a hard floor, if you're sitting on a hard floor without cushions or padding. Being patient with not getting the sleep you want. Maybe you have to attend a meeting when you don't really want to, you'd rather just go to sleep. These very ordinary activities all become part of the practice when you're developing that idea of maintaining and developing wholesome states and abandoning, letting go of unwholesome states of mind. <clears throat> the way the mind seems to develop through the practice is when uh, these small moments of, of Dhamma join together some moments where we put effort into the practice of mindfulness, small moments of mindfulness joined together to become samadhi. Small moments of kindness joined together to become metta, karuna, practice to the point where aversion doesn't arise in your mind. Small moments of letting go of some desire for a particular requisite or to do something, you let it go and those small moments join together to become much more 
deeper sense of self-control, restraint and peace of mind, independence of mind. Sometimes they talk about the, the human mind as being like a person with a bad leg. It needs something to lean on, a crutch or a walking stick. This is the untrained mind. We always need another object to focus on. So it's, often that's sensual craving, just something else to look at or taste or hear. But even a version where we not happy with our experience, not happy with something that's come our way, it's still a form of crutch because you get caught into the aversion, the irritation. And that's what the mind takes as its object. Sometimes we even prefer aversion to nothing at all. It's a form of subtle self-harm. Very rarely that a monk would, would, would self-harm in terms of physical abuse or harm, but mentally we can self-harm where we attach to negative emotions, negative trains of mind, just because that's something that stimulates the mind. It's better than nothing at all. Some people like to complain or think negatively about themselves or the monastery or the practice. But this is all like just crutches that the mind is leaning on. They say the Arya Pugla has developed the mind to a point where it can at least let go of these crutches. They still have that habit maybe there in the mind. But the, every time they see the habit forming, they let go. So they keep casting away their walking stick or the crutch for the mind. So gradually the mind is becoming independent. It's not bothered by conditions so much. It's more equanimous, more at peace or more beautiful. In the beautiful mind, the higher mind, the developed mind, is independent of conditions. So whether you get the food you want, or the medicines you want, or the requisites you want, whether you're with the people you want or not, whether the weather is hot or cold, this or that, you know, the beautiful mind is independent of conditions. Still sensitive, so you're still aware of temperature, you're aware of the requisites, you're aware of other people. <clears throat> but the mind has enough wholesome qualities, the path qualities, see the samadhi panya, to maintain itself. It's like independent of all these crutches that we keep needing to lean on. You'll notice when you're peaceful in meditation, it's like that. You've, you've let go of all the supports, all the crutches that you normally have to think of and react to and get involved with. And the mind can just be peaceful in itself. Just quietly meditating on the breath, accepting whatever feelings come up in the body, accepting whatever thoughts arise because you can let them pass away again. You have enough mindfulness and wisdom to, to do that, to relinquish, to let go. This is why we feel free and peaceful, because the mind is independent of all the other things. And 
the monk's life is one of the few lives in the world, few lifestyles in the world that allows us to really develop this sense of independence from the material world, from people, from all the connections we have with things in the world. This is letting go. We're moving towards letting go on the highest level. The highest level is internal. You're letting go is an internal thing. Even as monks, we still have to eat and we live in a monastery and we look after the monastery and we still relate to people. But internally, we're learning to let go, not to seek other people as crutches or material things as crutches. Learning to rely more on the Dhamma and the truth that we're bringing our minds to see. When you see the truth, say the Four Noble Truths, you understand suffering as it is, you understand its cause, you understand what you have to do to let go of the cause, to experience cessation of suffering, then the mind is really independent, free, happy, peaceful, beautiful. These are some of the themes you hear about over and over again when you visit Lumpur Cha's monastery or listen to his monk's teaching. Teaching about the practice of restraint, sila, patience, developing the, the mental muscle of letting go, developing mindfulness, states of calm, and then the insight, the wisdom that understands that by hanging on, clinging on, we suffer. By letting go, we can be free, peaceful. So I'll leave you with these uh, few reflections tonight and we can carry on meditating. <laughs>